Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, uh, my name's for, uh, well, <laughs> I don't know most of you guys, so my name's Nathan. <laughs> I was going to say, for those of y'all who don't know me, I don't know um, a lot of you guys. <clears throat> but uh, it's a privilege to be with you guys this morning. We're, uh, you, you've come to the end, right? Um, but not the end of uh, Summit, just the end of Ecclesiastes. Um, so just to be clear, and I want to announce this on the front end so I don't forget about it at, at, at the end, um, we will be here next week, okay? So um, even though we're closing out the book of Ecclesiastes, we have something, actually it's really cool, something really special planned for you guys, and uh, I promise you, you don't want to miss uh, this, this uh, next week, which, which will be uh, week eight, which is uh, the final week, all right? So even though we're closing out Ecclesiastes today, please come again next week, and uh, I think you'll be blessed. So we've come to the end of a, of a really interesting book, um, Ecclesiastes, and, and I, I think it's, it's a privilege uh, for me to be able to, to close this book out with you guys, because really at the end of the day, we've come to what it says up on the slide, and what, obviously uh, what the book of Ecclesiastes says. Hey, this is the, um, now that we've considered everything, this is the end of the matter. This is it. This is the conclusion. And so, obviously we're going to focus on that today. I want to make a couple of points before we uh, dig into the text. And the first one I want to make is that the, the teacher, which has been referenced all, obviously all the way throughout the book, the teacher has searched, really, um, to, uh, pun intended, the, the teacher has searched in vain um, to find uh, meaning in his life because he's been searching for meaning uh, apart from God. And so uh, it's, it's really, as we come to the end of the book, it's, it's kind of a sad and, and indicting thing on, on the teacher to say, I've looked for meaning everywhere, and all I've found under the sun is meaninglessness. And, and, and frankly, because he's been looking for it in, uh, in the accumulation of wealth, in, in uh, the, the power of position, in the accumulation of women, in, in all of the things that, that he's trying to find meaning in, and he's come to the end of it, and he said, but I've looked for meaning in all of those places, and I have the capacity to do so because I have um, access to all of those things, and I've found that at the end of the day, um, even though I've searched for meaning in all of those things, um, I didn't find any meaning. And, and so he concludes, and at, at the end of the last section we covered last week, in verse 8 of chapter 12, he literally just said, I mean, the last words that he speaks is three times, he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. All right, be blessed, we're praying. Have a great day, you know, <laughs> like that's depressing, you know, like dad gum, man. And so we, we come to a point now today, though, in this epilogue um, where, where things are going to get tied together and, and actually is going to point to meaning in the midst of a lot of meaninglessness. Um, as I was prepping for this, I was, uh, I came across this, this cool little deal. I'd never seen this before, um, but uh, what's interesting to me is, is that the, the same word so, so you have, obviously, you have the Hebrew Old Testament, which is obviously written in Hebrew. And then uh, around 150 or so BC, uh, um, a, a Jewish community in northern Africa translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, right? And that, that Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And the word, the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint for that, for meaninglessness or meaningless in Ecclesiastes, is the same word, it's the exact same Greek word that's used in Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Um, where it says in Romans 8.20, it says um, that the creation, uh, be, because of uh, the fall of man, 
creation was subjected to, and in Romans 8, it, it uses, most translations use the word futility. But it's the exact same word. It could easily be, be, be said that because of the fall and the sin of man, creation was subjected to meaninglessness. Right? And so really what you see in, in the teacher um, who's, who's teaching through Ecclesiastes is, is he's, going through, he's going through creation that is meaningless and, and he comes to the end of his life in this world that is meaningless and he's just really commenting on the nature of things. Like life is meaningless because of the fall of man, because of our rebellion against God, because of our treason really, because of our, our relational rebellion where we said, God, we know you created this and you said it was good in Genesis. But you know what? We want to go our own way. We want to try to find life, meaning, purpose, all of that stuff in our own, in our own way. To sit on the own, our, my own throne of my own life, right? And what you find there, like Romans 8 says, is a subjugation to meaninglessness. You cannot find meaning apart from God because it's not there. It doesn't exist. And so the teacher's gone his whole life, and he's come to this point where he cries out in, in, in verse 8 of chapter 12, it's all meaningless. And, and, and I would say, apart from Christ, yeah, it is. Right? And so, which brings us to the chief end of man, right? Um, this, this is the, our, the, the purpose um, that, that we were, that it's the purpose, it's the only purpose that will fulfill the void that's in our life. So let's jump in. Um, let's, I'm just going to read this and then we'll, I'll make some points. We'll be done. Ecclesiastes 12, starting in verse 9. I'm reading from the NIV um, for those of you guys out there that um, care about that thing. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was up, up, upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They, their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of, of making many books, there's no end. Amen to that, right? <clears throat> and much study wearies the body. Amen to that. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So I want to make, uh, I want to make a few points. Um, and the first one is, um, is, is this interesting phrase in, in, cha- in uh, verse 11, where he uses a metaphor of a goad and then a nail. Um, and and I, I, as I was reading this, I was like, that's a, I mean, that's a good metaphor. It's a good metaphor to talk about the wisdom literature that's found in Ecclesiastes. And he says this, he says, he says the, the wise sayings are like a, a goad. Well, what the heck is a goad, right? I mean, um, unless you guys drive cattle and then you know exactly what that is, you probably used it, right? But a goad is just a sharp rod um, that's used to prod cattle along. You can drive cattle, you can redirect them. It's a, it's a uh, you know, in, in some instances, it's a, it's a disciplining tool, not in the sense of like, you know, bad cow or whatever, you know, but, but in the sense of, of like, hey, you're going the wrong way. I'm going to hit you here to correct your course. 
Um, what's fascinating to me is a lot of times when I, when I hear like uh, th- this word goad, it has the, the, uh, the sense to it that when it's applied, it's painful, right? Um, but it, a, a lot of times it's depending on the person who's wielding the goad um, t- to determine whether that pain is actually productive or not. And, and so one of the other places we, we see this word goad used is in Saul's conversion, right? Where Saul is on the road to Damascus, and, and he, he encounters the risen Christ in the middle of the road. And, and um, when, when Saul is recounting this in Acts chapter 26, um, he's, he says something really fascinating. He's, he's like, I, I, I was thrown to the ground, and then I heard a voice say to me, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? It is, it is um, it's difficult for you. Another way to take that is it's wounding you to kick against the goad, right? And so a lot of times we think like, all right, now it's wisdom literature to like, you know, pop me back into, <laughs> into shape, you know, like this uh, disciplinarian type, type uh, dictatorial father. When really I think, and even in, even in Saul's conversion to Paul, I think we see this in Jesus where Jesus says, hey, I am trying, I, I am trying as gently as I can to correct your course, but you're fighting me, Right? It, it's difficult. You're wounding yourself because, because you're not agreeing with the course correction that I've got in my life. And I just thought, like, man, how, how, how often do we experience enormous amounts of pain because the, because the sweet voice of Jesus is saying, hey, no, 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 life's over here, right? Um, and we're like, no, it's not. <laughs> and we're going the other way. And, and, and Jesus is like, hey, look, um, I, I'm, I, I'll let you go, but I, the whole time I'm going to apply increasing pressure to you because I don't want to see you wound yourself. Right? I, I mean, dad gum, guys, I have a two and a half year old in my, in my house. I get, a, I get a subject matter, I'm a subject matter expert on this, not just in my own life, but also in the life of my son. Nate, do not touch the stove. Do not pick up that knife and shove it in your eye. Do not, I mean, like, these are literal things that I have to say to my son on a consistent basis, right? Um, why is there a knife left out on the counter, right? Um, Nate, don't bang your head against the wall. I mean, all, all sorts of things that, that are going on. Not because I want to, like, be in his business all the time, but because I want to see him grow up um, to, to be a man. I want to see him flourish. I want to see him be the person that God's created him to be. So as we think about um, the, the literature that, that's been written in Ecclesiastes, this really serves as a reminder for us, right? And, and the reminder is this. Hey, guys, um, I've told you that life and meaning can only be found in God. So when you go look for it in other places, which we all do, when you go look for it in other places, right, it's, I, I'm going to give you a little painful reminder. And that'll show up in a bunch of different facets, in our lives, pretty much every facet, but it'll show up in a bunch of different ways in our life. As we, as we attempt to find meaning somewhere, we, we eventually get to the point where it's just like, Ugh, but it's not here. I'm searching for it, but it's not here. So, so the goad is, the goat is, a, is a gentle um, reminder. The, the second metaphor that's used is a firmly embedded nail. Um, this is that, strong, that firm, strong, immovable metaphor that just says, look, even though I'm prodding you, like, the, the, the only one of us that's going to move is you. Like, um, where, where the Lord is saying, look, I'm wielding this for your own good. I'm wielding this for my glory. I'm wielding this so that you can become who I created you to be. And I'm not going to move from that purpose. 
whatever it costs me, even if it costs me my life, I will not move from this purpose. And so as we're moving, guys, I'm just telling you, as, as we're walking in the Christian life and you, you're running up against those areas of our lives where, where we just, we, we dig our heels in and we're like, nope, not this area, whatever that is for you, not this area. Um, guys, the Holy Spirit is relentless, right? He will not stop until, until he has um, completed the work that he has started in your life. Um, see Philippians chapter 1, right? So the wisdom of Ecclesiastes serves as a concrete, um, that firm, strong, immovable, and often a painful, but good. It's a good kind of painful reminder that life without God is ultimately meaningless. So, which brings us to, well, what, what is the end of the matter? What, what, are, um, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, the first of those in, in, in uh, verse 13 is this, um, is to, to fear God. So again, uh, a, a lot of my talk today is going to be clarifying language because a lot of times people hear terms like fear and goad and discipline and obey, and there's a lot of uh, unhealthy um, baggage that we bring to the table when we're trying to uh, think about um, these kinds of of terms, and so um, the first one I would say is is that fear God is associated. Uh, I think in the Hebrew mindset, the the fear of God is associated with the idea of kavod. Kavod is a Hebrew word that literally means weight, right? Um, it, it means heavy. This is the same word that that's uh, translated glory, the glory of God. Um, that, that God's glory is heavy, right? Um, I, for whatever reason, and I, you know, this will probably just show you how uh, how. Uh, surface level I am, but um, whenever I think of this, I think of that, of uh, the, uh, uh, the Dark Knight, right? The, this Batman movie, you guys seen this, right? With uh, Batman and Joker and, and uh, Heath Ledger and, and all that jazz. Well, at the beginning of the movie, uh, the Scarecrow guy is, has his little thugs and they're playing around with his dudes and, and these, these fake Batman show up. You guys remember this, right? They show up and they're um, they've actually got guns, which, as you know, like Batman does, he doesn't need guns, right? <clears throat> He's got this gun and this one. Um, and so he doesn't need guns. So they're, they're uh, messing around with these guys, and, and at the end, uh, uh, the, scarecrow's like, the Scarecrow's like, this is not, no, this is, this is fake Batman, right? And then all of a sudden, Bruce Wayne shows up, right? And he kind of like jumps down into it and bam! And, and all of a sudden, like everybody's like, whoa! And then the Scarecrow makes, makes the, the statement, he's like, there he is right? Um, it's, 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 that, it's that point where kavod hits you. The weight of, of, of the real thing shows up. Same thing with my ring, right? Um, I have a platinum ring that, that my, my father-in-law spent probably way too much money um, to buy for me. But um, if you put like a piece of aluminum or something in your hand and then you carry around this platinum, it, it feels different, right? It's different. And, and when you think about the fear of the Lord, I think, I, I think the, the Hebrew mindset around fear is associated with weight. It's, it's the point where it says, hey, when I come to a fork in the road and I can go left or right, what is weighing heaviest in my life to push me one way or the other? That's the fear of the Lord. 
And, and, if, and if, the, if, the fear of, if the fear of the Lord is pushing you toward himself because you've cultivated this type of life where you're, where you're listening to him, you're communing with him, you're, you're cultivating intimacy with him, then the fear of the Lord is heavy in your life. It doesn't matter what other kind of influences are picking at you. The fear of the Lord is so heavy in your life, it will trump everything else, right? That's the fear of the Lord, which... which um, frankly, implies that the, the highest end or the highest discipline that we can practice in the Christian life is to cultivate intimacy with that God, right? The, the, way, that, the way that the fear of God um, grows and becomes heavy in your life is that you put yourself, um, in, in, with God's help, in a position to receive the love of God. You cultivate intimacy with that, uh, with God. You cultivate intimacy with the Father, with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, obey his commands. Um, well, you, obviously you hear this, it's like fear God, which is like, ah, ah, I just don't want to screw up, and then obey his commands. All right, I've got to get busy. You know, it's just kind of like fear-based obedience, which is frankly no obedience at all. In fact, um, God, God said, hey, fear me and obey my commands, and Israel, did. Uh, they tried to do that for a long time, and guess what happened? They failed massively right? And, and guess what happens when you are like subjected to fear and, and like the fear like, oh my gosh, I better do this or else kind of thing. And then you run after obedience. Guess where you're going to end up? Failing massively, right? So there's another kind of obedience and the obedience is to a different command. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's the command of the Lord. I'm, what I'm saying is, is a different command than, than the command to obey out of uh, fear uh, of, of uh, subjugation, right? Um, I got you under my thumb. When Jesus comes along and he says, hey, this is the command, right? And, and the command is this, Matthew uh, chapter 22, verses uh, 36 to 40. Uh, the, guys, the Pharisee says, teacher, um, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands, right? So if you're starting, if your obedience is starting from somewhere other than the love of God, then you're not fulfilling the command, right? Um, which which uh, John 15 is basically a restating of that. Jesus says, this is my command, love one another, <laughs> right? Um, then, then, uh, then obedience becomes the natural outworking of your intimacy with God, versus a self-willed, self-conjured kind of, all right, I've got to put my head down and just really you know, do, do what I need to do in order to, to please God. Um, please, God, don't, um, uh, don't send me to hell or something like that. Right? That's not obedience at all. And so, someone might say, um, hey, um, somebody might look at, at this and, on the nature of obedience. And, and a lot of us, because a lot of us are, are a lot more legalist, legalistic than we even think we are. Legalism runs really deep in us, right? Um, and so I, I would just say this. On the nature of obedience, um, a Christian legalist may turn to Jesus' statement, if you love me, then you'll obey my commandment. In other words, do what I say so that you'll show me that you love me as a proof text to show that obedience equals love. This, but this fundamentally misunderstands the statement. The command of Jesus is love, right? It's only possible as the love of God saturates our hearts. If anything, Jesus is teaching his disciples on the nature of love. We love because he first loved us. If someone has trouble obeying, he does not primarily have an obedience problem. He has a love problem. 
your love is in the wrong place. If somebody has trouble loving, then he has a remembering problem. You've forgotten the gospel. If someone has trouble remembering the gospel, he must be reminded of the love of God, that God loves you unconditionally, which will compel him. See 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of God compels me. It pushes me forward. We must disciple people in belief first. Their belief about their identity as sons, their, the concrete nature of their acceptance as, as sons and daughters of God. That's where the Spirit is primarily working to bring about a deep-seated conviction in the disciple's heart that he is unconditionally loved by the Father. Only then can a disciple truly obey Jesus' command to love one another. Our capacity to love is directly contingent, tied to um, the amount of uh, love that we, um, through our transformation through the Spirit, is is receiving from the Father. As we receive love from the Father, then we can give it. Lastly, everything will be laid bare. You know, when I thought about this, it's like, uh, you know, God, like the the verse says in verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Hey guys, guess what's going to be laid bare? The thing that's going to be laid bare before God is the undeniable and absolute necessity that all of us have. The absolute and undeniable um, need that all of us have for the grace of God. Guess what you bring to the table? You bring nothing. Guess what you can conjure up and work really hard to do? Nothing. <laughs> right? That's, uh, that's tough for us to hear a lot of times because, well, we're men. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've got I to prove that I'm a man. No, you, gotta go, you, you have to go uh, remain in and cultivate intimacy with the Father so that you can receive his kind of strength to be the man that he created you to be, right? We bring nothing. Man, even our best stuff is nothing. <laughs> so, so coming back to this suppression of creation into meaninglessness. Well, guess what? Um, In in Galatians chapter three, I want you all to turn there with me real quick. Um, Galatians chapter three, um, verse 13. I love Galatians three. It's one of my favorite um, in the whole Bible. But it says this. It says, um, so so remember, the the, the curse is meaninglessness in creation. It says, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Um, For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? So we're subjected to this meaninglessness. And if we try to find life apart from God, um, we we will not find it. All we'll be met with is the meaninglessness, the futility of life. And Jesus knew that. He, He knew that that was our condition. And so he came and he took on that futility. He took on the meaninglessness that, that, Kohelet, that that the teacher has been talking about for 12 chapters. And he redeemed it. He infused meaning back into a meaninglessness existence. You know, I was thinking about um, this, this, this whole thing reminded me of, man, where, where, where do we go from here? You know, at the end of Ecclesiastes, um, where, do we, where do we go? Well, the, the guy that leads the equipping team here, he, he was, well, I think, the first one up, uh, 
talking. He said, um, <clears throat> one of his favorite books, and it's kind of, if it was uh, Blake Holmes, if it was up to him, we would probably preach like Christ and the Bible, and then closely to that um, is Pilgrim's Progress, <laughs> right? Um, uh, John Bunyan is, is like uh, one, of his, one of his heroes. And so um, I actually uh, texted him yesterday. I was like, hey, I'm talking about John Bunyan tomorrow, and he's ecstatic, you know. Yes, you're a genius, you know. <laughs> I'm like, well, dang, man, bar's not very high for that. Um, <clears throat> But, but the, in, in the Pilgrim's Progress, you have this, the protagonist is this guy named Christian, and he, he departs from um, this, this, this town to move toward the celestial city, and he's got this massive burden on his back, right? Um, if you haven't read the story, it's, 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 a, it's an allegory for the Christian life. But um, th- this is the point where Christian reaches the cross, and so I'm going to read a little bit um, and then uh, close with a prayer. Now, I saw in my dream that the highway which Christian was to go, was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because this massive load on his back. He ran thus until he came to a place somewhat ascending. And on that place stood a cross and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so it continued to tumble until it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I didn't see it anymore. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he's given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, uh, even until the springs that were in his head sent water down his cheeks. He's weeping. And he exclaims, Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in until I came here. What place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Bless the cross. Bless the sepulcher. No, rather, blessed be the man who there was put to shame for me. The only appropriate way to end this book is to leave it at the cross. At the cross. Where where meaning is infused into a meaningless life. At the cross where daily we have to return. Daily we have to return to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, guys, you can go. A lot of you are still going down this way, trying to find meaning apart from him. And I'm telling you guys, it is not there. So keep going if you want. Like, like Wagner likes to say, you know, keep doing what you got. But if you keep doing what you got, you're not going to like what you, what you get. Right? Because down there is just meaninglessness. But, but at the cross, Jesus has infused meaning into our lives. He's reconciled us back to the Father. And so I want to end with this prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's a, a book by the Puritans. The Puritans, man, they knew how to pray. So we're going to let them pray for us, right? When you would guide me, I control myself. 
When you would be sovereign, I rule myself. When you would take care of me, I suffice myself. When I should depend on your providing, I supply myself. When I should submit to your providence, I follow my will. When I should study, love, honor, and trust you, I serve myself. I fault and correct your laws to suit myself. Instead of you, I look to man's approbation, and I am by nature an idolater. Lord, it is my chief design to bring my heart back to you. Convince me that I cannot be my own God or make myself happy or my own Christ to restore my joy or my own spirit to teach, guide, and rule me. Show me that none of these things can heal a wounded conscience or support a tottering frame or uphold a departing spirit and then take me to the cross and leave me there. Jesus, leave us at the cross. We pray these things in your powerful name. Amen.